Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. I have some questions about the impending court case involving five former Canadian World Junior Hockey players. Ford Nation assembles, outliving your money, a shocking report on cardiac arrest, Hamilton Winterfest is back, and Tay-Tay is taking over the Super Bowl, all that and more on the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Five former players on Canada's World Junior Hockey team have been charged with sexual assault in a case that dates back to 2018. Now, the story has made international headlines, and some people are suggesting that these charges could be a moment of reckoning when it comes to changing hockey's culture, including zero tolerance for violence, hazing, bullying. And and many people are asking, how will this impending court case unfold Hamna Anwar is a criminal defense lawyer at Lindsay Law LLP and founding executive of Women in Canadian Criminal Defense and joins us here on GMH. Ms. Anwar, good morning. How are you today? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Maybe I'll start with this. Are there different options for defense attorneys and crown prosecutors, i.e., can a request or will a request be made to have five separate trials or is it likely that we're going to have one big trial involving all the accused? So in a case like this, it could play out in various ways. Um, Normally, when a crime is alleged to have occurred out of the same incident, the Crown is likely to proceed by way of a joint court information or an indictment. And from the Crown's perspective, this is an efficient way to prosecute the case. But more importantly, it saves the complainant from having to testify in five different trials. And this becomes even more important in a sexual assault case because at the end of the day, if she's found to be a victim of sexual assault, um, it's re-traumatizing for her to having to testify five separate times. Um, And it's definitely not in the public interest to do this because it would discourage other victims from reporting sexual assaults of a similar nation, knowing that they have to take the stand multiple times. But the Crown doesn't have to proceed this way automatically. They could proceed with the information separately, but later bring an application to join the information. The other thing is the accused person also have a right to make an application to sever the information, which means to have a separate trial. But this happens in very limited cases. So the accused would have to show that the interests of justice required the severance. But there is a presumption that persons involved sort of in a joint common enterprise should be joined together. Um, on top of that, the court in this case will be very concerned about the complainant having to go through multiple trials. Makes a lot of sense. Does the complainant or the victim in this case have to be in court? Because <laughs> if that individual is in court, uh, their identity will be exposed. And up until this point, we don't know who this person is. So she doesn't have to be in court for the procedural court appearances, like the first court appearance or when the lawyers are getting a new adjournments, but she absolutely has to be in court for the trial to testify. But there are certain protections that complainants of sexual assaults have in a case like this. For example, there's a publication ban, which the court mandates prohibiting the publication of any information that could identify her as a person, um, for example, her name or any other identifying indicators. And this order is mandatory if it's sought by the Crown or by the complainant herself. And it lasts indefinitely, even after the case is completed. Um, And if this goes to trial, the complainant can also testify without having to see the accused in the trial, uh, which means that she can either testify behind a one-way screen when the accused can see her, but she's unable to see them, 
or she can testify outside the courtroom through a closed circuit facility, which means she would be in a separate room with um, normally the crown and the defense lawyer. And her picture is being brought to the actual courtroom with the accused. So she's not in the same courtroom as them. Um, amongst other things, she can also request to have a support person. And in very rare cases, an order could also be brought for the exclusion of certain public members or the public generally, if it's in, in the interest of public morale, the maintenance of order, or the proper administration of justice. But there's a presumption in favor of a public trial, so courts are very reluctant to exclude the public without solid grounds. Amna Anwar is a criminal defense lawyer at Lindsay Law LLP. We're talking about these five former hockey players with Canada's World Junior Team back in 2018 have been charged with sexual assaults. They have uh, surrendered themselves to police. Does that mean anything? Does that carry any weight? And a lot of people are saying, why didn't police arrest these guys? So nothing can be interpreted from the fact that the accused have turned themselves in. In fact, this is the right way to go about it. When the police have grounds to arrest you, either you can go and turn yourself in at a fixed date and time, or if you don't, the police will show up at your home, your work, or wherever you may be to arrest you. And in terms of why the police did not arrest them, it's actually very normal and routine for the police to provide a person a reasonable amount of time to turn themselves in, especially when there is no concern that the person will flee or endanger the public. And the lawyer can help facilitate this process. So, and uh, frankly, it's much easier when the people can turn themselves in themselves rather than the police having to use their resources to go find the person and arrest them. Because there are five accused and there is one victim, how complex of a case is this? So it would be difficult from the point of view of scheduling trial dates if this goes to trial, because you have to take into account the availability of the five accused if they're out of custody and the five lawyers, as well as the Crown and the court. So it, it would certainly be a very lengthy trial. Amongst other things, the defense lawyers also have to be very strategic and a little bit collaborative in their cross-examination approach. Because uh, frankly, if you're cross-examining the same complainant who has been questioned by four different lawyers about the same thing already, and you're up last, it's not very effective. And the judge or a jury doesn't have to hear the same thing over and over. It's not an effective way to cross-examine. So those are some of the things that can come up, which, which can complicate the case. We have one more minute with Hamna Anwar, criminal defense lawyer at Lindsay Law LLP. Will this case be, whenever it does get to court, will it be before a judge or a jury? So it really depends on exactly what the accused are charged with. It sounds like in the news that they're simply charged with sexual assault and not not charged with aggravated assault or otherwise. So this really depends on the election the Crown makes. This sexual assault is a hybrid offense, which means the Crown can proceed to uh, proceed summarily or by indictment. If they proceed summarily, then the accused do not have a right to a judge and jury trial. But if the Crown proceeds by indictment, then the accused have a right to be tried uh, before a judge and jury in the Superior Court of Justice or in the Ontario Court of Justice by a judge alone. Well, interesting information. Hamna, thank you so much for adding some insight into this. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Hamna Anwar is a criminal defense lawyer at Lindsay Law LLP and also the founding executive of Women in Canadian Criminal Defense. Again, the news conference from London Police will be held Monday morning. We will bring you uh, all the details that happen on Monday to you instantaneously. 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big weekend ahead for the Ontario PC Party. It's holding its policy conference tomorrow and on Saturday in Niagara Falls. Yeah, just down the highway. It's billed as the Get It Done Conference. So what can we expect to get done? Isaac Callen is an online digital broadcast journalist with Global News. You can check out his articles online, globalnews.ca and 900chml.com. And Mr. Callen joins us now on GMH. Isaac, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Get It Done. What does Ford Nation want to achieve this weekend? I mean, the conference is really uh, an important date in the calendar, especially for party members, local associations. It's perhaps a little bit less of a big deal on the Queen's Park calendar for the ministers. It's a lot about listening, a lot about resetting the dial, geeing up the base. I think getting it done this year is also about getting it reset, getting the dial reset. It's been a really tough year for the Ford government in a lot of ways. You know, we've seen the Greenbelt scandal take up a lot of airtime, a lot of coverage, particularly over the last six months. Doug Ford has lost five cabinet ministers over the last year to either, you know, resignations to the private sector, looking to run federally, people who stepped down during the Greenbelt scandal. So it's been a difficult year, I think, for Doug Ford. And this conference, part of getting it done is getting the message reset, focusing again on the messages that the PCs were so strong on a couple of years ago, talking about housing, which was tainted for them a bit by the Greenbelt, talking about building infrastructure, building highways, building transit projects, and really re-motivating the people who knock on doors, the people who win parties' elections, getting them feeling good again, feeling like they can get it done again. So a really, really big event for the PC party and a chance for them to feel like they're together again and reset their agenda after a really difficult year. Do you get the set, and you've said the word reset or resetting a couple of times, is this going to be more of, listen, these are our pillars and we're going to continue to, you know, talk to the electorate uh, based on, you know, housing, based on cost of living, or are there any hot policy ideas that are going to be brought forward? A lot of the conference is about looking for and listening for those hot policy ideas. The ministers, for example, going are unlikely to be briefed on new policies they're announcing and much more likely to be sitting in little subcommittees and little policy breakout rooms, listening to what the riding associations in Niagara or the riding associations from Ottawa say they feel that the party needs to do. The big event will obviously be Doug Ford's speech on Saturday, and that we're much more likely, like you say, to hear them hitting the notes of the things they think they're strong on focusing on what the party wants to really present itself as and project as. The odds that Doug Ford is going to announce a huge new policy on Saturday are pretty low, but I think it's really important that we listen to what he says because that will give you an idea of where the PCs feel strong and where they really want to lean into. What they're telling the base they're good at and what they're telling them that they want to do more of. So yes, a little bit more about getting back to the greatest hits and a little bit less a new single, as it were. Isaac Allen is an online digital broadcast journalist with Global News, and you're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about the Ontario PC Party holding its policy conference in Niagara Falls tomorrow and on Saturday, and the theme this time around is Get It Done. How many times do you think we're going to hear the name Bonnie Crombie at this weekend's conference? <laughs> I think that that depends on how much it's playing on the minds of everyday PC members, again, the people who knock on doors. I think we know from having seen Doug Ford out and about that Bonnie Crombie's name is playing on his mind a little. We've heard him talk about her at press conferences and events, and 
The PCs have taken out adverts to make a point of trying to highlight her weaknesses. We'll definitely see a lot of Bonnie Crombie coming out of the PC camp when the by-election is called at some point in the next six months in Milton to replace Palm Gill, the cabinet minister who's resigned. How much we hear her at the weekend policy convention this weekend depends, I think, how important the members think she is to policy. So of the events happening this weekend, for example, there will be a breakout um, policy discussion on transport and infrastructure. That's like some of those events really will be about talking about the details of what members want to see in policy. And I'd imagine to that they don't see Bonnie Crombie as that important. However, if you go to the leaders dinner, if you listen to Doug Ford's speech, if we have the there's a bear pit event, a little bit like uh, at the Association of Municipalities conference where members are allowed to ask ministers and MPPs questions on a stage, a sort of panel, as it were. And again, if Bonnie Crombie is playing on those members' minds, if they think that their riding association could be vulnerable to the Liberals at the next election, I think you'll hear Bonnie Crombie. I think you'll hear people asking about strategies and policies that perhaps help fight against the Liberals with their new leader. Uh, But if the local members don't see Bonnie Crombie, don't see the Liberals as a big part of their policy, we'll perhaps hear a little bit less of her. In our final minute together, we know that a federal election is coming, who knows, maybe maybe this year, probably probably next year at the very least. How much influence do you think Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader at the federal level, is is having in Doug Ford's ear, whether it's at this conference or even sometime this year, to say, hey, we got to set a tone here? I think it's a really interesting one. Doug Ford spoke about this yesterday. He said that no one has a handcuff on anyone. He referenced his experience running a business and now his role as premier of the province. And he basically said, after having just lost a cabinet minister to Pierre Polyevre's federal campaign, that he can't stop anyone running. And Queen's Park has been full of little rumors about who would possibly think about running for Pierre Polyevre. And leading up to the Palm Gill resignation, the MPP for Milton and the former minister of red tape reduction, who's now going to run federally, there was a lot of whispers, a lot of questions. So in that sense, I think the federal conservatives are really playing on Doug Ford's mind, because like I said, they've had a tough year. The federal conservatives are looking very strong. You speak to pollsters who talk about just how many seats they could on current polling win in Ontario. And so I'm sure Doug Ford, something that he's saying quietly to his MPPs, to his ministers, something that will be talked about at the conference is the fact that In parts of Ontario and in some seats, the federal Conservatives are quite a hot ticket. And that's why that reset, as I've mentioned before, that getting it done message is really important at this conference to make the PCs feel strong internally, to make them feel like it's up to them if they want to go and speak to the federal Conservatives, if they want to get on the same page and the same message, because it's a choice, a policy choice, rather than something they feel like they have to do because of the perceived strength coming out of that camp and the risk of potentially losing another MPP or two to a federal run at some point in the next few months or year. We'll see how the uh, Premier and the Ontario PC Party begins to get it done starting this weekend. Isaac, thanks for the time this morning. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Isaac Allen is an online digital broadcast journalist with Global News. Check out his articles online, globalnews.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you concerned? I'm sure the answer is going to be yes. But are you concerned about retiring and are worried about outliving your money? Maybe you're already retired and concerned that you're not going to have enough. Well, you're not alone. There's a new report out from the National Institute on Aging that shows a quarter of Canadians, 50-plus, that as of right now, they don't earn enough to cover their current 
household expenses. 17% say they're financially stretched. 7% say they're having a hard time making ends meet. And that's just 50 plus. Dr. Samir Sinha is the Director of Health Policy Research and co-chair of the National Institute on Aging and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Sinha, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Uh, These details are certainly disturbing, not surprising, however, considering our current economic challenges. What, What are some of the numbers that stick out to you? Yeah, so just those ones in particular, you know, for our population 15 older, we, we know that financial, you know, realities are playing out for people of all ages, but we get more concerned as we get older because it's not just about making ends meet uh, and paying your bills, but it's also um, as you get closer to that retirement age that you have in your mind, uh, are people going to be financially prepared to retire um, and prepared to uh be able to uh, um, live a long retirement with sufficient savings. And so when we looked at uh, whether people, how people are feeling about retirement, 40% of that same group that we surveyed said they're not in a financial position to do so. And one in four actually said they're unsure whether they can afford to retire at their desired time. Hmm. By 2031, which is in seven years, it'll be here before we know it, one in four Canadians will be over the age of 65 which shows me that we're, this is this is probably even uh, just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we're probably haven't seen the worst of this yet. Yeah, and I think this is where people are getting really concerned. You know, they, you know, because when you make it to sixty-five in our society, and the good news is that today, compared to many years ago, most of us will. But that also means that we have about twenty life, uh, years of life expectancy ahead of ourselves. And so it's not only a question of, you know, uh, will I make it to retirement, but will I actually outlive my savings? And that's becoming a growing concern for a number of older Canadians. And that's why we want to make sure that more older Canadians are financially prepared so that they can retire when they'd like to retire, number one. Um, And then they can feel that they have the financial security they need to live a a healthy and long retirement. We're also seeing a lot of seniors, including those who are 70 plus, even 80 plus, still working because they have to, which is pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, certainly we once we ended mandatory retirement in Canada, the good news is that you know people can stay you know working and engaged you know you know with paid work if that's what they want to do. But we're seeing, as you just mentioned, an increasing number of people who are staying in paid employment because they have no choice but to do so, uh, and that can be challenging because as you get older, there might be more limited opportunities that you can pursue. Uh, and if your savings are not in a situation and you're not able to actually work and earn, an, earn a living, then that can make it really, really hard to, uh, um, you know, to, to, to make ends meet. That's why we want to try and start tackling these issues earlier rather than later. Dr. Samir Sinha is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Sinha is the co-chair of the National Institute on Aging out with a report that shows a quarter of Canadians 50-plus said as of right now they don't have enough money to to cover their current household expenses when it comes to retirement, well, that's a whole different story. They fear that they're going to outlive, or they're uh, uh, they're worried about outliving their money. So, what do we need to do? Does this report come with recommendations to make sure our seniors are in a much better financial place? Well, a lot of the work we're doing is kind of trying to you know help people understand that you know there's the the goal of not only. Uh, making ends meet today in your day-to-day living, but also thinking to the future, especially, you know, for, for people who are pre-retirees, that, you know, you if you're thinking that you're going to retire at 65, 
remember that you have about 20 years of life expectancy ahead of you that you need to be able to afford and, and prepare for. So sometimes that means, you know, for people who can, um, you know, make decisions that uh, allow you to save sufficient funds because a lot of people forget that our retirement income system is built on three pillars. One is that you'll have access to the Canada Pension Plan, but we also expect that people are going to have a certain amount of individual savings to also supplement that to give them the lifestyle they want. So sometimes it's it's uh, living more within our means at a, at a younger age, but then also um, understanding decisions that we can make that can put more money in our pocket as retirees. And one of those examples is is knowing that you can delay taking your CPP or old age security um, up until the age of 70. And by doing so, that can put 40% more money in your pocket every month as a retiree if you actually take that strategy. But most Canadians don't know about it. And so most Canadians don't even do it. The other part of this, too, is as we get older, uh, you know, we get greater and maybe more frequent health concerns, which also adds, in some cases, some financial stress as well. Absolutely. And I think the challenge for many of us, Rick, is we forget that, uh, you know, throughout most of our lives, you know, we're, we're you know, we might be lucky enough to be covered by a, a, a workplace health, uh, health policy that covers medications or dental or other expenses, for example, um, and everything else is generally covered by Medicare. But once you retire, um, you're less likely to have that supplemental coverage. So all of a sudden, um, you start facing kind of additional healthcare costs or realize that government-funded home care only gets you so far. And if you want to stay at home, you're going to have to pony up the rest. So it's understanding kind of what your financial obligations might be uh, beyond just kind of, you know, living, you know, the, the retirement lifestyle that you, that you expect. Uh, and then just start thinking about a financial plan and the decisions that you can make now um, and as you retire that can set you up for greater success. So Canadians have options ahead of them. It's just a matter of thinking to the future um, and, and seeing how one can do certain things differently now. Never too early to start a plan, that is for sure. Dr. Sinha, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me, Rick. Dr. Samir Sinha is the Director of Health Policy Research and the co-chair of the National Institute on Aging. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new report out from the Heart and Stroke Foundation that says there are about 60,000 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests in Canada every year, way more than the previous estimate of around 35,000. And we're learning that only one in 10 people will survive an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. That's 10%. Andrew Lotto is a senior manager with the Heart and Stroke Foundation and joins us on GMH. Andrew, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I would have never have guessed the out-of-hospital survival rate was that low. Yeah, it's 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 not a great number, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, the data that we have uh, has always indicated that out of hospital cardiac arrest was a major problem. Uh, the reality is uh, with the increased incidence, the survival rate hasn't changed in a number of years. But with the increased incidence, there's even more of an urgent call to action to know what to do in that situation. I do want to get to those calls of action, what needs to happen next. But there are so many interesting tidbits of info from this report that I want to get your reaction or your thoughts on, one of which is that nearly half of cardiac arrests happen to people under the age of 65, which really dispels the misconception that uh, only seniors are impacted by this. 
That's right. So sudden cardiac arrest is uh, an emergency that can happen to anyone. It's sudden, it's unexpected, and it can happen to anyone of any age, even young, healthy children and adults, uh, which is why it's shocking when you see a football player on the field collapse uh, like Damar Hamlin did last year. Mm -hmm. Another one, and this one I find uh, just puzzling, that women are less likely to be resuscitated by people in the public in comparison to men. Do we know why? There's a little bit of a stigma attached to putting your hands on a woman's chest. And so I think there's a you know, that, that, that's one of the obvious reasons. And I think that what ends up happening is people uh, are apprehensive, they're, they're, they're concerned, they wonder if they can get in trouble or they can be sued. And they, they, they take those stigmatic responses and, and put that in front of their recognition that this is an emergency. And so that apprehension can put barriers up to taking immediate action. Um, and, and particularly with an AED, um, an automated external defibrillator, you might need to bear a woman's chest in order to put the pads on the chest. And so that's another reason why women don't get the same uh, immediate rapid treatment as men do. And we need to disabuse people of that notion. Yeah. And, and that's critical because every second counts in these cases. Absolutely. I mean, uh, for every minute of delay, uh, there is a 10% reduction in the chance of survival. So it's really important to uh, act immediately, to call 911, to shout for an AED, and to really quickly get on the chest and push hard and fast uh, to the beat of staying alive. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Andrew Lotto from the Heart and Stroke Foundation. We're talking about a new report that shows that uh, only one in 10 people will survive an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and there are about 60,000 of these in Canada every year much higher than the previous estimates of around 35,000. Here's another, you mentioned uh, AEDs. Here's another interesting statistic that it's, it sounds like not a lot of people know how to use these and not a lot of bystanders know how to administer CPR. That's, that's a big issue. It is, it is an issue. And, and I think that the reality is uh, the barrier here in this particular case is people, again, are apprehensive, uh, aren't sure what to do, are, are fearful of doing something wrong, but the reality is any CPR is better than no CPR. Your quick actions uh, will save a life, can save a life. And so it's really important. You double somebody's chance of survival when you start pushing on the chest, uh, when you use a defibrillator in those early for first few minutes of a cardiac arrest. And so it's so critical for people to know that the most important thing is to not be paralyzed by fear and to take immediate action because the person in front of you will die if you don't help them. That's a good point. This uh, report shows that bystander CPR rates across Canada range from 42 to 72 percent and bystander use of AEDs or defibrillators uh, is much lower, about 13 percent. All right, we have a couple minutes to talk about what needs to happen next. What does the Heart and Stroke Foundation want to see? So there's a bunch of things that we want to make sure happen. Uh, obviously, we want to increase uh, people's awareness. And so we want more messaging out around how important it is to do CPR, where you can get more information and trained. And really, it's it's very simple. We want people to know those quick actions I mentioned just a minute ago, calling 911, pushing hard and fast on the center of the chest, shouting for an AED. We also want AEDs to be more visible and public, publicly accessible. And at this point... Uh, there, uh, we have AEDs in a number of places. Most hockey rinks and and community uh, uh, community centers, public facilities have automated external defibrillators. Not just in Ontario, but across Canada. 
but people's awareness of the fact that they're there remains low and we want to increase their awareness of AEDs and we want those AEDs to be publicly visible and clearly marked so that people can get at them. They shouldn't be behind a locked door or behind a, 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 a counter. They should be available for people to access in the public domain um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we don't know when that cardiac arrest is going to happen. Let's hope for it. I was yeah, just going to say, let's hope sorry. we can turn the tide. Andrew, we're, we're out of time. I appreciate your time this morning. I encourage our listeners to get more information online at heartandstroke.ca. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Andrew Lotto is a senior manager, business development and engagement with the Heart and Stroke Foundation here in Canada. Really startling statistics. I, again, never, never would have guessed that only one in 10 people will survive a cardiac arrest outside of a hospital. But as you just heard, there are several factors pointing to that statistic of being true. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Tomorrow is also the start of Hamilton Winterfest 2024. Yeah, it kicks off tomorrow, runs until February 19th. What can we expect from this year's festivities? Well, joining us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Jeremy Freiberger with Cobalt Connects, one of the driving forces behind Hamilton Winterfest. Jeremy, good morning. How are you? I'm well, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You're back for another Winterfest. Thoughts on having zero snow and mild weather for at least the first <laughs> part of the festival? Uh, my guess is we're going to have it for the whole thing. Last year, we tried to do an ice rink on the roof of Jackson Square, and it turned into a giant and swimming pool so uh we we did not roll the dice this year thinking we would get snow <laughs> and assumed we wouldn't so well, that was a good assumption on your part what what yeah. is what is new at winterfest this year uh there's so much new stuff i mean with you know 70 75 events across the city every year uh there's always new stuff but one of the biggest new things is uh what's called winterfest pop so we had a really great time at jackson square last year up on the roof but we wanted to add something new so We've added this new indoor element uh, in case the weather is weird, <laughs> um, which is like this 10,000 square foot like pop culture explosion of video games and arcades and uh, mini putt, cotton candy, toy displays of all different kinds. Uh, so it's really this like amazing new indoor space that you can pop into and uh, have it, have a great time. You can just um, all, all sorts of cool activities indoors. It's almost like a Comic-Con on steroids. It's exactly a Comic-Con on steroids. We've actually had a lot of like cosplay folks reaching out to us saying, like, are we are we allowed to come in costume and stuff? I'm like, absolutely you are. So, yeah, it should be quite fun. Yeah, this could be a huge part of Winterfest this year and going forward for sure. And yeah. I, I'm not sure if this was a part of uh, Winterfest last year. Maybe just my memory is horrible, and that's probably the case. Winterfest sweepstakes. Is this new? No, we, we started that last year as well okay. uh, in an effort to sort of build up a bit of a, a mailing list of people and, and to get a better sense of whether people were reading our magazine and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, so no, Winter's Feet Stakes was last year. We had like 2,300 people enter last year. I think we're already past that this year. Uh, and we've got some great prizes. We're going to some new prizes we're going to be announcing later this week. So um, it will keep growing and uh offering um, our patrons something cool to try and win. So, Also back this year at Hamilton Winterfest 2024. And again, you can check out all the activities in the calendar online at hamiltonwinterfest.ca. But also back is the Winterfest Hub, a centralized location where a lot of stuff is happening. Yeah, the Hub was, uh, it was an experiment last year going up to the rooftop of Jackson Square. And we totally fell in love with the space. There are people that have never been up there. And it is fantastic. There are little groves of trees and all sorts of little pockets. There's a stage. 
and we're sort of expanding the stage this year. So up on the rooftop, we commission about a half dozen artists to do really large scale, light based public art pieces. So as an example, Tannis MacArthur, who's a local uh, fashion designer, every year makes a giant inflatable for us. You might have seen our giant icebergs she made a few years ago. This year, she's made a new friend for the icebergs, a 36 foot long inflatable narwhal. Uh, that's all filled with lights. We've got another artist, Rhoda Medhat, who's making this giant piece to fill what used to be a fountain on the rooftop uh, with these crazy plexiglass tubes. Uh, Nancy Benoit is doing a thing called the Curious Circle Circus. So there's all these amazing art pieces we bring in, and then we fill it with programming. So there's three live concerts, which are all free. Hmm. There's a fantastic drag show called Frost Queens. Again, it's free. Uh, Love and Lights is our Valentine's Day party. And then Family Day is a partnership with the city and with the the uh, public library and the AGH. And last year we had like 6,000 people on the rooftop for Family Day and it was wow. fantastic. That's funded by the Insight Foundation and that lets us do music all day, puppets, story time all sorts of stuff to keep the kids amused for hours. Yeah, it is pretty cool that you can incorporate Valentine's Day and Family Day in one yeah. festival. Yeah, I know. We get we pick up a couple of uh, really great holidays in our little stretch. So it's uh it's it really helps a come up with new programming ideas, but ensures that people have some time off as well to come out and actually enjoy it. So. There's so many moving parts when it comes to concerts, art installations, uh, you know, g- giving away stuff, having <laughs> you know the new uh, Winterfest pop. Like, there's a lot that goes in. This must take the entire year to plan. It really does. Yeah, like we start planning and writing grants. Actually, we start writing grants and stuff during this year's festival wow. <laughs> to fund next year's festival. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've we've grown the team this year. So we brought in some new folks, Steph Bishop. They're running Winterfest Pop, uh, and they've got a whole team of staff with them. And then Steve DiPionte, our production manager, has been with the festival for three rounds now. Um, he's really got a machine going upstairs on the hub. So uh, I get to come up with kooky ideas and pull in artists to make those projects really exciting and then focus the rest of my time on marketing and branding and all of that fun stuff. So it's it's a growing machine. We won a couple of awards last year. We've gotten the the nod that maybe we're in that uh, neighborhood this year again. So um, it, it's great to be able to bring something exciting to Hamilton. We've been This is our fifth year running it in partnership with the city and it really feels like it's a machine now that's got some good ideas that can sort of keep growing and, and uh, celebrating this fine city that we have. We've got just over a minute to go. Whether our listeners have been to Winterfest in the past or not, what advice do you have for them to experience it as best they can? What are some of the tips sure. you can offer? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, I mean, one thing I would say is go check out the full calendar of events on the city's website. You might not be into art installations or concerts. Maybe you're into science. There's some great stuff going on at the planetarium. Maybe you're into sports. There's curling, hockey, lacrosse, all throughout the whole schedule. So there's all sorts of stuff to do. So go check out the calendar. Every single event is in there, and it gives you a little blurb about what's going on, who's running it, and then a link to the website to learn more about it. Most of the events in the festival are free. So checking out the calendar really gives you that once over. Um, and then I would also say, um, <laughs> it's the funny way, like dress for the weather uh, wherever you go. Sometimes you think, oh, I'm going to go check something out and it's kind of warm where I am. Bring a tube, bring some gloves. That way, no matter what the weather does, you can still enjoy yourself. And uh, everywhere you go, have a hot chocolate. 
Like just did every single event you go to have a hot chocolate, even if it's six hot chocolates in one day. That just keeps your spirits up, keeps your body warm, and uh, nothing wrong with chocolate. That sounds know? like my kind of festival for sure. Jeremy, <laughs> I appreciate the time. Best of luck uh, tomorrow and going forward. Thanks so much. Jeremy Freiberger is with Cobalt Connects, one of the driving forces behind Hamilton Winterfest 2024. It kicks off tomorrow, runs until February the 19th online. There's the calendar, the schedule. You can map out your attack plan, if you will. HamiltonWinterfest.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Are you ready? Not only for Super Bowl 58, which is 10 days away, Niners, Chiefs, but also the Taylor Swift factor. Here's Kansas City from the 19, throwing at the goal line, and it's caught by Kelsey for the touchdown. Oh, you know, Taylor Swift is going to be a big part of the broadcast on CBS. She is expected to fly into Las Vegas after her concert in Tokyo the night before to cheer on her beau, Travis Kelsey. Yes, Tay-Tay has attended a lot of Kansas City Chiefs games this year. In fact, 12 of the 18, including all their playoff games. And has made a big impact, particularly for advertisers. Mike Leon is the president of Brand Heroes Marketing and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic, and I am getting ready for this big game. And I have been, I've been okay with the Taylor Swift story. I think it's added a, an intriguing element, and I really get a kick out of the people that absolutely distaste what is going on here. <laughs> Totally. Well, you know what? It's funny to sort of think of like a day, if we go back in time to a day before Travis Kelsey and uh, Taylor Swift got together, we had two very distinct audiences. We had the NFL audience and we had Swifties. And never the two would ever meet until they did. And it's just so amazing what's happened since then. Well, since then, female viewership for National uh, Football League games has increased by 9% year over year, last season to this season, and that is higher than the increase in male viewership, which went up 6%. That is huge. 100%. And you know what? It comes at an interesting time, too, because the NFL as a brand, and you wouldn't think this because, you know, it's it's an institution, right? But, you know, it's also a 100-plus-year-old brand. So, even separate and aside from this, they've also been going through their own version of modernization. They've been really trying to appeal to a younger demographic. They've been really trying to appeal to women. So, you know, and they've been doing a lot of things to, to try and achieve those pursuits. And then this happens. And this, in a lot of ways, is really a gift for them because it furthers those efforts so much more. Absolutely. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell uh, said uh, th- this relationship has been great for the National Football League, and there is a lot of financial uh, data to back that up. One ad-, ad agency said that Swift has created a brand value, not only for the Chiefs, but also the NFL, in in the uh, stratosphere of like $330 million when you look at digital, radio, print, TV, highlights, social media stuff. Those are numbers that we haven't seen an individual bring to a sport, perhaps ever. It's it's absolutely huge. But you know what, Rick? It's created an interesting kind of question because, you know, if if I'm a marketer that's looking to advertise in the Super Bowl, you know, I look back at all these different factors, right? Like I look at the audiences, I kind of think about like, you know, what I want to actually do, what, what kind of creative I want to put out there. 
But in a lot of ways, the game has kind of changed this year because of those audience dynamics. So it kind of makes me think, if I'm advertising, what do I do a little bit differently this year? And from an audience perspective, what's the game going to be like this year to really recognize these shifts? And is that the expectation? Are Super Bowl advertisers, and we're already seeing some of the commercials being you know, uh, shared online and on social media, are Super Bowl advertisers, at least more of them, going to focus more of their attention on women this year because they know more women, more female eyeballs are going to be watching? I think that's very possible. In, in fact, I, if I were betting, I would probably say that that's absolutely going to happen. I think, though, and you, know, you brought this up earlier, I think there's always the question of, you know, do you, how far do you kind of go with something before you kind of get away a little bit from the base? And I think, you know, like I said, you know, the NFL uh, was very much trying to, um, and in the efforts of trying to attract more women. But, you know, are you going to see ads that are, you know, linking Taylor Swift directly with the NFL? Probably not. But I think, you know, are you going to try and see ads that really try and kind of expand that target base? I think so. 100%. Wasn't that long ago that Super Bowl commercials uh, had broken the million-dollar plateau? If an advertiser wanted to have a spot during the Super Bowl, it was going to be a million dollars. Well, years later, that figure has now hit $7 million. And by all accounts, the ratings for this game, not only because of the matchup, because of the Taylor Swift factor, we're expecting potentially an all-time high viewership for a Super Bowl, upwards of 130 million or more people. When it comes to future years, how does the NFL use this year's big game to capitalize in future years? You know, I think it's a great story to tell because what they could say is, hey, listen, the biggest game of the year just keeps getting bigger. And from a sales pitch standpoint, you can't get much better than that. So I think it's I, I think there's a, a very strong pitch on the part of the NFL to say, look, we're still relevant. We're continuing to be relevant. At a time when broadcast value is declining big time, the, the Super Bowl is a property that keeps growing in value. So it's a great story to tell, and I, I think it's going to keep getting better. Any prediction as to whether there might be a proposal after the game? <laughs> well, I'm sure the powers that be at the NFL are really hoping and praying for that. But, you know, I uh, if I were a betting person... And, you know, also listening to my kids talk about this, I would have to say probably not. There's actually a prop you can bet on whether or not Travis Kelsey is going to propose to Taylor Swift after the game, which would be bonkers if it happened. (laughs) 100%. Mike, appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the game. Thank you. You as well. That's Mike Leon, president of Brand Heroes Marketing. That big game, the Super Bowl, happens on February the 11th in Las Vegas. And wouldn't it be something? There, there's there been a commercial, if you've been watching the National Football League this year, there's been a commercial that this season is scripted. And there's a bunch of, you know, mock writers around this uh, big uh, uh, square-shaped table, and they're all kind of pitching ideas of maybe we should do this this year. And while... Travis Kelsey and, and uh, Taylor Swift have not been mentioned in these commercials. Just the thought of the scriptness of a professional sport is not only hilarious, but when you think of what has happened with the Chiefs not really playing particularly well this year, but kind of hitting their stride as the playoffs have started, this romance blossoming, and now with them in the game, the defending champions with Tay-Tay and Travis uh, potentially meeting post-game in a celebratory hug, And who knows, maybe a proposal. Uh, 
if if it happens, my gosh, the script writers got it bang on. That is for sure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.